0: This is The Guardian.
1: I'm Grace Dent and I'm back. Friends, it's time for your fourth helping of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me with more celebrity guests like Dono O'Porter, Graham Norton and Mallory Blackman as we throw the fridge doors wide open on the comfort
0: foods that have seen them through.
1: You'll notice I'm talking a lot. That's because I'm, I'm hoping somewhere along the way I don't have to eat it. <laughs> oh,
2: the, the level of devilment in your face.
1: Comfort Eating returns on the 18th of October with new episodes released every Tuesday. Comfort Eating with me, Grace Dent. is supported by Ocado.
2: Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Last week, I came across a study that really upset me. According to a leading scientific assessment, Earth's wildlife populations have plunged by an average of 69% in just under 50 years. It's almost impossible to imagine. A new report has shown that wildlife populations have fallen by nearly 70% since 1970. The Worldwide Fund for Nature says governments, businesses and the public must take action to reverse the destruction of biodiversity. And it seems like we're getting these kinds of devastating stories about what we're losing from our planet every week. A new United Nations report
1: says nature is essential for our existence and a good quality of life, but points to a stark warning. Humans are transforming the planet's natural habitat at an unprecedented rate.
0: Lots of us are now feeling like we need an opportunity or a space to make sense of our grief.
3: Ok is the first Icelandic glacier to lose its status as a glacier. In the next 200 years, all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This monument acknowledges that we know what is happening and what needs to be done. Only you know if we did it.
0: That was Icelandic author Andre Magnuson reading his eulogy to the Ok Glacier, the first in Iceland to be declared dead, lost to climate change. But how do these kinds of acts help us? What purpose can rituals serve in dealing with our grief for the natural world? From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay and this is Science Weekly. The eulogy that you heard in the introduction by Andre Magnuson was part of a funeral for Ok. Over 100 people hiked up to the site where the glacier had been, performed readings and speeches, and held a moment of silence and placed a memorial plaque with the eulogy. But it does kind of beg the question, why a funeral for a glacier?
3: And this is something you kind of struggle with, is... Uh... Can you grieve a glacier? And I would say that uh, for me, this glacier is more like a thermostat, or it's more like a, something pointing at something much bigger. And I would say my grief was there, you know, in the bigger picture. Iceland is changing a lot. You can actually see the glaciers melt, for example, not in a time-lapse. You can just walk on ground that you know a day before had been under ice for a thousand years. So my fear would be about the totality of the glaciers that are going, and then maybe the species that are going to be in trouble. And of course, uh, all the coastlines that will be flooded when these glaciers come splashing at people's doorsteps.
0: So, mourning the loss of the Ock Glacier, gave André a focus for all the other losses he felt across the Icelandic landscape and how those are rippling outwards. And these kinds of commemorative acts for the environment are becoming increasingly common. But why are we turning to rituals to help with our grief? And why do we perform grief rituals generally?
1: When you ask why do we perform mourning and grief rituals, there's a really simple answer to this question. The surface level easiest answer is we do it because our parents did it, right? And we do it because members of the community do it. We do it because it's part of a social convention.
0: Claire White is a professor at California State University, Northridge, who studies grief and death rituals.
1: The more interesting question is why have these rituals survived over time and been passed down, right? And they've survived in short because they serve really important functions for us as humans, individually, and for us collectively as groups. And the broadest level explanations point out that, or point to rather, the fact that performing rituals alleviates anxiety. It helps us to feel like we are regaining a sense of control in the face of threat.
0: I can see how when you've lost someone or something that you really love and you really care about, there is this complete gut-wrenching sadness, and there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of uncertainty. But why is it that rituals can help us with these emotions?
1: We're able to engage in these pretty prescribed acts, right? Like, things that we have to do in a ritual in a certain way to perform it correctly. And that almost distracts us. We see it gone amok in obsessive-compulsive disorder, actually, where people perform things over and over and over again. Rigidity, they're stereotypical, and there's redundancy. You don't need to do it 20 times. However, rituals really cultivate these goals and sub-goals. You have to do this, then this, then this, in this order, this way. And this takes our mind off
0: temporarily, the overwhelming anxiety. I guess that's where gaining a sense of control comes in as well. And when it comes to the climate crisis, I know that I at least have a overwhelming sense of being out of control. But Claire, I wonder as well about the importance of doing rituals alongside others. When it's performed with other people
1: who, crucially, are undergoing the same kind of emotions as us. What it does is rituals bring together those people so that we feel like we are not alone, we have social support. But in addition to this, it does something else quite remarkable. When the conditions are right, it actually fuses our identity with theirs. The boundary between us and others almost becomes porous. So the group becomes one. What this does is it actually makes this event extremely important and extremely salient in your mind. And over time, as you reflect on the meaning of this event, that autobiographical memory forms part of your central narrative of who you are. And those people that were there with you suddenly become part of your self concept because they're part and parcel of your
0: narrative framing of the world. It's interesting that you say that, because we recently did an episode when the Queen died on how loss affects your identity and how part of the grief is losing a part of yourself. And I know that you're actually researching rituals around the Queen's death now, but what I want to ask about this time is how rituals can remind us that nature is a part of our identities as well, because around the world, lots of communities do recognise this, right?
1: So, yeah, there are. There are many rituals across the world um, and ways of construing the natural world, actually, in an even broader way. So, for example, I'm thinking about first Native Americans and their relationship to the land. Um, And I think to us, for most people, we really see the land as an object, right? It's an object to be used. The road gets me from A to B in the morning in my car. Uh, A mountain is there to be climbed for exercise. Um, And Native Americans, for example, are able to construe the land as a kind of sacred space. And I think rituals really allow us to cultivate that sense of changing the land from something we see and something we use from a functional property To something that is sacred, something that represents something about ourselves and our place in the world and broader humanity.
0: Claire, one of the things that I found particularly interesting about Andre's eulogy is that although it was a commemorative act, the eulogy itself was really about the future and it was about action. So do you think that rituals can help us to act? Because it is kind of what we need to do right now. Well, at the most practical
1: level, they can be a catalyst for future actions. They're a part of the process that needs to happen before change can happen. And essentially, they demonstrate that you need to come together in a group. And when you come together and bring these emotions They're incredibly powerful motivators, right? The emotional contagion that happens in these rituals elevates the emotions. And those conditions are ripe for social action and social change. So we get a feeling like we are connected to our fellow human beings, like we can act and we want to act. And so they can be seen as a precursor to more practical action.
0: So, rituals clearly can be a way to inspire emotion and action by bringing people together and forging connections. But for Andre Magnussen, it's not just about connecting to the people around us to act, but also connecting to the future. It's about helping us remember how close we are to the future generations who depend on our action now.
3: I took my daughter to visit my grandmother. So I sat with my daughter in her kitchen and we calculated, when do you become 98? And my daughter sits there and, uh, and scribbles on the paper and she's like, 2103. And we're like, yeah, imagine that you might be sitting in this kitchen in the year 2103, hopefully with a clear mind and you'll just be a cool old lady and people will want to hear your stories. And maybe somebody comes over, somebody that you have deeply influenced, somebody that you've known for, you know, 23 years or something. When is that person maybe 90 and still remembering you? And my daughter does the calculation and she comes up with 2,170. My daughter can touch almost 250 years with her bare hands. So this handshake of generations is something that we have been culturally disconnected from, and we don't react in our daily lives or planning or politics like 2170 was something that we are deeply connected to.
0: Thanks again to both Andre Magnusson and Claire White. I don't know about you, but I definitely feel inspired to go and perform a ritual for the environment. If you want to read more, there's a great article by science journalist Sophia Quaglia about how funerals and rituals can help us mourn the loss of nature. And that's on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. Now, Grace Dent is back with a fourth helping of the Comfort Eating podcast. This time, her guests include Graham Norton, Mallory Blackman and Dawn O'Porter, they're all chatting about the foods that they go to for that bit of comfort. The first episode is out now, so search for Comfort Eating wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. That's it for this week. The producers were me, Madeleine Finlay and Ned Carter-Miles. The sound design was by Tony Onatuku, and the executive producer was Max Sanderson. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then.
3: This is
0: The Guardian.
2: Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever you get your podcasts.